Amen. Thank you for that. This morning I feel tremendously thankful. So grateful. In case I haven't said it or said it recently, thank you. I'm so thankful for you. This church is a blessing to me and my life. You're a blessing to this community. You're a blessing to this world as you live on mission with the Lord. And as I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've had a song running around in my head. Some of you won't be surprised. It's by a songwriter named Andrew Peterson. The song is, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? Have you ever had an experience where something has just been so significant or so beautiful that you just want to find somebody to say thank you to? I was on vacation this past week and I had one of those moments. I was looking out at the night sky over the ocean and just seeing this beautiful display, I just wanted to say thank you because of the gratitude in my heart for what I saw. G.K. Chesterton is quoted as saying, the worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. But I was able to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the glory of your creation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote while he's in prison, he said, it is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. And that's how I feel. I just feel so rich because of the blessings I can count in my life. I have an incredible family. I live in an incredible community in a wonderful nation at just such a particular moment in history that's so satisfying. I feel the safety around me. I have the blessing of health and security. I have this church and I have Jesus who saved me and keeps me and watches over me and gives me every good thing, just as that song said. So what's on your mind this morning when you think of that it just, you just want to thank somebody because of what he's done? Maybe it's your family, maybe it's for the church, maybe it's for, uh, you know, your experiences or just the blessing to be able to wake up this morning and be here in worship. Is there something that comes to mind? Because I just want to encourage you, don't hold that kind of stuff in. You just be sure you thank God for what he's done. Well, this summer, we've been going through the Psalms. We've called it Summer in the Psalms. And many of the Psalms are simply songs of thanksgiving, songs of praise. They're kind of born out of this realization of what God has done, of how God showed up, of how he delivered, of how he blessed, and sometimes just because God is. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 34. It's where you can turn to in your Bibles, one of my all-time favorites. Several weeks ago, before we got to this series, I told Steve the, uh, the, the passages of Scripture I was going to preach from, and I told him about today, and I was going to preach on Psalm 34, and I said, you know, Steve, there's this song that the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sings called Psalm 34, and uh, just wanted to put that out there. He reached over and pulled a songbook off his desk, and he said, this one right here? Huh. And so uh, I just want to say thank you to the choir and orchestra. I know it's hard to learn new mu music in the summer, but you did it. And what an incredible anthem for us to sing over us as we open our time in worship and studying God's word. Well, Psalm 34 is a work of poetry by King David. In fact, it has 22 verses. And that makes it, uh, it connects to uh, the Hebrew language, the Hebrew alphabet. Because each verse begins with a different letter of the alphabet, or that's how it's supposed to work. You study the commentary, you'll realize there's a place in there. The way they do these acrostics these ancient Hebrew acrostics, they would kind of leave out one letter and come and repeat another one. So uh, don't try to go back and say, well, Wes was wrong. That, that, that was meant to be that way. 
But I'm going to read to you this morning, you can join me in Psalm 34. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. I'll leave off the last two verses. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Well, this is a psalm ultimately about praise and thanksgiving to our great and glorious God who is a refuge. The Lord answers, the Lord delivers, the Lord saves, the Lord provides. And today, I want to bear testimony that the Lord is good. And a life of service to the Lord is worth it because he's good and because he pours out blessing on those who seek refuge in him. So we're going to look at the psalmist's personal comments on life here. He provides us with a word of praise, a word of testimony, and he concludes with words of wisdom. So we're going to look at the very beginning of Psalm 34. And I wonder if you notice, like me, just how personal David is being as he opens this psalm. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name. I was speaking to Lavona Page about this series of going through the Psalms. And she commented how interesting it is to see how David kind of bears his heart so in such a vulnerable way in his poetry here. He's sensitive, he's emotional, he's descriptive. And you think he's a warrior king. Where does this come from? But he bears his heart in such a tender way. She said it makes sense that he's called a man after God's own heart. Because you see it on the pages here. King David is not concerned with singing his own praises here. He's not concerned with describing how his quick wits or his you know, well-developed skills are an asset to him when he finds himself in trouble. He gives praise to God and God alone. And so the question is, what about you? Do you live a life of praise to God? And how do you praise God in your own life? Hopefully you see Sunday mornings gathering here together with the saints and 
joining in worship and all of a sudden as you form the words on your mouth, hopefully your heart is agreeing so that the words matter what you're saying, the words have meaning that you're saying to God. But do you have habits of praising God throughout the week, throughout your day? Maybe it's uh, listening to certain music and it just kind of draws you to praise. Maybe some people it's, you know, morning coffee, looking at a, a sunrise or whatever it might be. Maybe it's personal prayer time. Or maybe you just try to bring up God in conversations to brag on him of what he's done and what he's doing. David says, I will bless the Lord. This means more than just to extol his goodness. Or to talk about the power of his name. It's more than just praising and lifting up God in worship. It's about giving something to God. And then he says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Isn't that how it should be for us? Can you think of any word or sentence that's worth prioritizing in our life more than praise and thanksgiving to God? But how often... Do we allow other things to sit on the tip of our tongue? They just so easily fall off. Grumbling, sarcasm, boasting, fear, some sort of snide comment. That's more quickly able to fall off your tongue than praise to God. David says his praise is right here. If you talk to me long enough, you're going to hear about it. Because I'm not going to keep it to myself. It's just waiting to fall off my lips. In fact, he says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Well, many of us struggle with the first part of that. Yeah, I will boast in my soul as well. And if you sit here long enough, it's going to come off my, I'm going to talk about all the good things I'm able to do, you know, or what I accomplished or how well it went for me. But David here says he boasts in the Lord. Well, what else do we have to brag about? I think David gets it right, and we know that. Anything you're able to accomplish, anything you're able to achieve, acquire, do, know, it would be impossible if it weren't for what God had already given you in life. But we're so quick to take credit for all the good things we can or have done or the great experiences we've had. But Paul writes in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to to my weakness. Well, why does he say that? Because it's in our weaknesses that God's strength is so much more obvious, obvious in our lives. So he says, I'll boast in my weaknesses because that's where you get to see God at work. Verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So the idea is to exalt, to magnify, to make big the name of the Lord. Magnify the Lord with me. But we tend to magnify other things rather than God. How many things are you thinking about this week that are just getting bigger and bigger in your head? Your problems, your fears, Monday is getting so big in your mind right now. Uh, the start to school, our abilities, all of a sudden we allow that to get big. And sometimes those things get so big in your mind that it is impossible to allow God to get bigger. Because you've just given priority to those things. But you're receiving an ancient invitation today from the psalmist. He says, come magnify the Lord with me. Let's make him big. Let's exalt his name. Not the names of other people or other things or other situations. Boast in the Lord. Bless the Lord this morning. You know, we think of the Christian life 
as experiencing blessing from God. Because that's what we, we, we're mindful of, of all the blessing that God gives to me. But the psalmist invites you and me to participate in the act of blessing God. And that leads to a really important question. Is it possible for finite humans to bless God in any way? Have you ever had someone who's done something just so dramatic for you or so over the top or been so generous that you thought, there's no way I could ever come up with a way to repay them? Or maybe somebody who's got everything and so you're like, what am I going to give them? What, what do I give to somebody like that to say thank you because they've just got everything already? Well, let me point out to you, God has everything. What are you going to bring to him that he doesn't already have? He is complete in himself. It's not like he needs to be recharged by our worship. It's not like he's looking forward to Sunday so he's like, oh, I'll finally have the strength or I'll be more God or I'll be more glorious because of my people praising me. That's not how it works. So perhaps the psalmist kind of uses the wrong word here. Maybe the psalmist means we're just to praise God, to proclaim his character, to talk about his attributes or his deeds. Gerald Wilson offers comment on this, saying that the psalmist desired more than just believers talking about the wonderful deeds and marvelous character of God. See, there's this idea within the word bless that was specifically penned here in Psalm 34, 1, demonstrating that the writer intended to return to God the blessing that God had given to him. God's blessing demands this in-kind response. We don't say thank you and walk away. We say, how do I give back to God? A return of good, a return of blessing to God. We use this phrase, or maybe you do, I do sometimes, to return thanks. And it's the idea of expressing gratitude. We say it particularly in prayer. I say that we'll sit down at the table to eat after the kids take their first few bites. I say, guys, 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 let's return thanks. And so to bless is to return blessing to him. So to bless the Lord, we return the blessing to him. Wilson points out, while it may be theologically correct to say that God is unchanged by our blessing, it is certainly true that when his creation returns divine blessing, his purposes are brought to completion in a way that is not possible without that response. So when all of a sudden we take what we've been given and we try to give it back to God, then something's gone full circle in our lives of what God's done. So how do we do that? course we give tithes and offerings God I'm giving this to you it's yours anyways you do with it as you would 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 want to do you know we give to him of time of of talent you know uh, investing in being in the choir and the orchestra teaching Sunday school of serving those in our community with needs we say God I'm just going to give this to you so that you can use it we're blessing God in that way so we return blessing as if we're able to give something to God he doesn't already have Was that the habit of your life? Don't wait for Thanksgiving. You go ahead and bless God in your life. Develop habits for daily blessing God in your life. So the psalmist opens with a word of personal praise, an invitation to praise with him. Then he gives a word of testimony. Um, He says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Well, we have the context of what David is going through or what he's experienced that caused him to write Psalm 34. The header in my version says, A psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, 
who drove him away, and he departed. So 1 Samuel 20 tells about the time when King Saul is trying to kill David. He wants to get rid of David. David's already been anointed king. He's a, uh, Saul has abandoned God, and he wants to kill David. And so, he's, uh, so the king's son, Jonathan, provides cover for him so that he can escape. And David ultimately flees to Gath. That's where the Philistines are. And once he's there, he hears around him the Philistines saying, that's the guy who slayed Goliath. In fact, David comes in with Goliath's spear. And they're all saying, it's David, it's David. Well, David, um, David gets nervous. And so what does he do? He pretends to be insane, to be mad in front of the king so that the king would hopefully let him go. Well, evidently does it in an effective way because the king says, I got enough crazy people around me, get rid of him. And sends David on his way. So David uh, pretends to be insane and goes on his way. Psalm 56 actually tells us what's running through David's mind in this moment. It says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Then he says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. That's coming out of the same experience. So he trusts God because he's afraid. And David offers testimony in Psalm 34. God answered and he delivered me. And in verse 5, he gives this general exhortation. He says, they look to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. So God transforms us. You know what it's like when everybody can tell what you're going through. They see it on your face. And so he's saying those who go before God, who see him as a refuge, even in the midst of trials, all of a sudden, joy becomes visible. You know people like that too. You're like, I don't know how they even keep a smile on their face. But the Lord has sustained them. So they have joy on their face, not shame. And then another word of testimony, verse 6, this poor man cried. He's talking about himself. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's what the Lord did for David. And then he exhorts in verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Well, the angel of the Lord, I would have to say, is a little bit of a mysterious character that shows up in the Old Testament. It shows in several books of the Bible, and it's referred to in different ways. So sometimes it's referring to the Lord, sometimes it's referring to an angel. Zechariah 12 talks about how the angel of the Lord goes before God's people to destroy their enemies. Well, I think that's what David's referring to here in Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord is this reference either to the Lord or to his angels, his servants, who serve as a protector and a defender for the people, even in the worst of circumstances. So David knows there's this hesitancy when it comes to trusting the unseen God as a refuge. We're in church, and in some ways it's just so easy. We just treat it theoretically and say, sure, I can trust in God. You need to trust in the Lord. Amen, we'll do it. But in the midst of circumstances, that's you know, easier said than done, right? And David is speaking from circumstances that were very complicated, very difficult. He's being chased by his own king. All of a sudden, he ends up surrounded by the enemies, the Philistines. His best friend had to abandon him. His family is nowhere near. What's he going to do? Who's he going to turn to? Well, turn to God. Well, that's easier said in hindsight, but in the moment, surely he's thinking, what can I do? But David knows because he showed up. So he exhorts his readers in verse 8. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
because I've been there. Isn't that a powerful word? Matthew Henry suggests we understand this to mean let God's goodness be rolled under the tongue as a sweet morsel. It just tastes so good what God has done for us. So speaking from experience, David proclaims the blessing, that happiness, that satisfaction, that joy is for the one who trusts in God as a refuge. I don't know if you know this about me, but I enjoy eating good food. So does the rest of my family. So our vacation is, involves the beach, but it really revolves around what we're going to eat, right? I don't know if some of you have the same experience. It's, you know, we, we have a meal talking about what the next meal is going to be. Well, before I left for vacation, Mr. John Paris delivered to me a box of choice select peaches from McLeod Farms in McBee, South Carolina. I know that Georgia claims to be the peach state, but they've got nothing on these South Carolina peaches. They were incredible. My family devoured them in no time. It was about two days. So I saved four of those peaches so that on Wednesday I could make peach enchiladas. Peeled and quartered peaches wrapped in crescent rolls, covered with butter, sugar, and cinnamon. Then you add that final ingredient, put it in the oven, 350, 45 minutes, pull it out, serve it hot, scoop of ice cream. Incredible. (laughs) Incredible. They're so good. Well, when they came out of the oven, I told my wife, Rachel, I said, Rachel, text this picture to Brett and Emily Quattlebaum. Because I wanted them to see the picture of the peach enchiladas because they thought it sounded good. But that final ingredient that I put in the peach enchiladas was just too much for them. Because you take a can of Mountain Dew and you pour it over the top just before you put it in the oven. It's the secret ingredient. It's what makes it so good. And they're like, eh, maybe without the Mountain Dew, but I don't want that. Well, I want you to know, Brett and Emily, that the holidays did message. They made the peach enchiladas. And they said they were yummy. And so I want to say to you, exhort you today, just taste and see that the peach enchiladas are good. (laughs) Well, some people approach the Lord in the same way. They're like, am I sure I can trust him? Will he really show up? Will he prevent me from having a good time? Will he prevent me from experiencing life in abundance? Can he really provide for me? Can he really bless my life? Will he show up when I need him? Will he provide joy in the midst of difficult circumstances? Will he listen to my prayers? Can I trust him? Is living for him really worth it? Is he truly a refuge when life seems like it's upside down? The psalmist says, taste and see. Taste and see. Satisfaction guaranteed for eternity. The Lord is good. So we have this word of praise, a word of personal testimony and confidence in God. And now the psalmist gives a word or words of wisdom. In verse 9, the psalmist encourages those who trust the Lord to fear him. So the first word of wisdom is fear God. And of course the idea is reverence. That's what he's talking about. A healthy respect for God. He's good, but he's God. He's not just your buddy. He's God, so you fear him. We fear God other things besides God. We fear how being vocal about the Lord might end up hurting our lives. We fear what people might think about us. We fear what it might be like if we trust God for the outcome whenever we know the right thing to do. But the psalmist says rather than fearing others or fearing circumstances, you fear God. And then he adds, to those who fear him, there is no want. 
And at first pass, I have to admit that sounds blatantly false because I know plenty of people that fear God that experience want. I've been there myself. So the message of the psalm is not fear God and life will go perfectly for you. He's offering praise and thanksgiving to God, but he admits, I've been in want. He's not claiming that he's never been there because remember, he's in dire straits. He's bottom of the barrel right now. So fearing God led to difficult circumstances. It led to need and it led to want. And in verse 10, he gives clarity on this. He says, first of all, we're given the wisdom to fear God. Second, it's to seek God. And he adds here in verse 10, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So the idea is not simply not being in want or lacking nothing. The idea is not lacking any good thing. So the problem is perspective. Because there are plenty of things that I think are good that maybe God sees a little bit different. And we all, when, we all, when it all comes down, we trust him to know what's good, what we really need. In verse 11, we now hear the voice of a loving father. He refers to children here, offering more wisdom. He's fear God, seek God. And in verses 13 through 15, he tells us, act righteously. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So live for the Lord. Don't just, you know, pay lip service with praise and worship. You live the righteous life. But not because good is its own reward. Being good is its own reward. Derek Kidner says, Scripture always goes beyond the half-truth that goodness is its own reward. He says in verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. I desire more than just the peace and happiness that comes along with living a quiet life. I want God's eyes on me. And the psalmist says, that's what you get. He sees you. He knows you. He hears your prayers. He takes it seriously. He recognizes the tone. He knows how to respond. Finally, the psalmist exhorts those listening to rely on God because he's a worthy refuge. Verse 17 the righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. That's been repeated throughout this passage. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. They're intended, these verses are intended to be an encouragement to those who feel opposed or oppressed, that God is aware. He will deliver. And when you cry out, God hears and he acts on your behalf. Then verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. So Charles Spurgeon offered comment on this. He said, David had come off with kicks and cuffs, but no broken bones. And then he goes on to apply it to us and he says, their real self is safe. They may have flesh wounds, but no part of the essential fabric of the saints shall be broken because we're hidden in him. We're safe with the Lord. Nevertheless, those who bless God are not beyond suffering and pain. I remember moments when I thought, you know, I'm trying to serve the Lord. This should just go easily. But surely you've lived long enough where you've realized it's not the way it is. In fact, when I meet with a couple who's getting married, I remind them or I point out to them. I say, just because you want to honor the Lord doesn't mean it's going to be easier. In fact, it might be harder. Because when you try to honor the Lord, you're swimming against the current of this world. And so it takes, it, it, we live in a fallen world. We have to remember that. So verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So a righteous life involves afflictions. It involves 
adversity. But at the beginning, David writes, I will praise the Lord at what? All times. It's real easy to praise God when everything's going well. But David says, even when I'm at the bottom of the barrel, I will praise God. Come, magnify the Lord with me. So the psalmist makes it clear that those who are called to bless God are not those who are beyond suffering and pain. So we get from David's harrowing experience in Gath a word of praise, a word of testimony, and words of wisdom. So we're going to conclude. I'm going to look at the last couple of verses here. Verse 21 says, Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So those who do not see God as a refuge will bear their own guilt. They will pay the penalty, the consequences for their sin. But then he says in verse 22, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So there's this contrast between the wicked and the righteous and their outcome. The wicked will bear their own guilt, but the righteous will not, because they will experience redemption. God makes a way through Jesus. He suffers so we don't have to. He goes to the cross so we don't have to. He died a death we deserved so that we could stand before him forgiven. So we receive salvation by grace, through faith. If you've never received the grace of God found in Jesus, let me just tell you, taste and see just how God, good God is to those with needs. So for those who are servants of the Lord, what word of testimony does your life offer to those watching you? Is it praise of self or praise to God? Is it an example of a man or woman who goes far on their own or one who is totally dependent on God? Is it a life of self-centeredness or one of fearing and seeking God, acting righteously and depending on the Lord for the outcome? So for me, I want to be an example of a man who praises the Lord at all times and keeps his praise in my mouth because I want you to know he is good and he is a true refuge. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this testimony that David was delivered. But the promise that extends to us, that you will deliver us, you will save us, you will rescue us. You will turn your face towards us. You will hear our prayers. So God, I pray for those here that have needs today. That this morning as you speak to hearts, that they would respond. God, that you'd be honored in our gathering. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Perhaps God is speaking to your heart this morning and you have a decision to make following in salvation, receiving grace by faith. Or maybe it's you're ready to make a decision about joining the church or following in believer's baptism or something like that. I want to encourage you to respond this morning. The choir's going to sing. I'll be down front and you'll have the ability to respond. So right now I want to invite you to stand. As God works in your heart, you respond. <laughs>